You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David White. Thanks for joining me, David. Always glad to be here, Neil. And it's a rainy day outside, which makes it the perfect day to stay inside and listen to a podcast. How about this one? Oh, brother, when art thou? And uh, good news now, David, we're available on Google Play. So for Android users or really anyone can get us on Google Play. It's free. You don't need a Google account. You can just search for Oh, brother, when art thou? And you can download the podcast, listen to it whenever you want. Of course, if you're an iPhone user or a Mac user, Apple Podcasts, you can get Oh, brother, when art thou? on there as well or on SoundCloud or Podbean which are both great options for listening to the podcast as well. So, without further ado, maybe let's get into uh, this episode, and I'll ask you, David, Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's October 5th, 1871, and John O'Neill, William O'Donohue, and roughly 35 of their followers are accidentally invading America. Accidentally invading America? That's right. That doesn't uh, sound like a good thing. In general, I would recommend better map readers if you intend to invade Canada than the ones that O'Neill and O'Donoghue brought with them. So you're saying they weren't very good at reading maps. Maybe let's back this up a bit <laughs> before we get to the maps. Who, who were these guys? So we've got two different leaders uh, with different backgrounds leading this raid. So... The first one, probably the most important one, is John O'Neill. Now, O'Neill's already invaded Canada twice, so he's got a history of this sort of thing. One which is pretty hard to match in Canadian history, actually. He invaded Canada twice. He's invaded Canada twice. So the first time he invaded Canada was in 1866. He was a member of the Fenians, who are in group of Irish, I suppose you could say, rebels against the British government. So if they're Irish rebels against the British government, how do Canada and America come into this story? Well, America comes into this story very naturally. A lot of Irish citizens have to leave that country during the Irish potato famine, for example, and they go to the United States to build a new life but they don't necessarily drop their connection back to their home. So they go to America, but they still, some of them, those of them who support the rebels, still support freeing Ireland from Britain. And so they form a branch of the Fenian Brotherhood, this rebel group in America, at first just to raise money and to try and support the group from overseas. Is that how O'Neill gets involved? That's an early place where O'Neill gets involved, yes. As this group is very in its very early stages, O'Neill shows up as one of the members who enthusiastically supports it, having left Ireland himself, but still wanting to see it freed from the British Empire. All right, and who's the other character involved here? So the other guy involved is William O'Donoghue. A good Irish name. He's an interesting character himself. 
he also left Ireland and went to the United States initially, but he wanted to become a priest rather than a rebel, and therefore he went looking for a seminary to study to become a priest. And the seminary he chose to go to was at St. Boniface in what is today Manitoba, a province of Canada. Okay. He goes to St. Boniface to study, and this is a few years later than O'Neill gets involved in the whole invading Canada business in 1866. It's 1869. But he never becomes a priest because as he's studying there, the Métis, the majority population of Manitoba at that time... And, and Métis, for people who aren't familiar, are children from French and native parents. That was initially the origin of the Métis, who now fo- form their own tribe of indigenous people in Canada today, yes. Okay. And the Métis, at this point, Manitoba is just becoming a part of Canada. It isn't one yet. It's being brought into this confederation this is just not long after canadian confederation this is just after confederation and the metis aren't happy with the political settlement that the canadian government thinks should be the basis for the manitoba constitution so they rise in a revolt in 1869 led by louis riel pretty famous for canadian listeners anyway will probably have heard of louis riel Indeed, but this isn't actually his most famous revolution. This is the first Riel Rebellion, and it actually ends bloodlessly when British troops arrive and agree to some of the demands that the Métis have, and with superior numbers of troops, convince the leaders of the rebellion to flee into exile. One of those leaders who flees is William O'Donohue. So he was studying to be a priest... But he gets wrapped up in being a rebel. Yeah, he joins this rebellion and loses his chance, essentially, to become a priest because now he's involved in these political activities. Well, that's one way for your career path to go, I guess. So he flees to the United States? He flees to the United States, initially with Riel as part of uh, this leadership group who don't want to be in Canada because they're afraid of being charged with you know criminal activities treason treason would be one of them they're accused of murdering thomas scott we can debate all day whether they're guilty of any of that but they don't want to be debating it in a canadian court which they feel might be biased against them which is probably not unreasonable fair enough i guess so initially they're all together one group but once they reach the united states a major split occurs between Riel and O'Donohue. O'Donohue views their rebellion as not being over, but as having had a setback. And he wants to raise support from the U.S. government to create a new republic of Manitoba and get the military force to drive out the British troops and restore his conception of a free republic in manitoba whereas riel is actually fairly happy with most of the compromises that he's made with the canadian government over the new constitution of manitoba and really doesn't trust the american government to be a better ruler of the 
Métis than the Canadian government is going to be. So he's highly opposed to this plan that O'Donoghue is proposing. Is there any support in the U.S. for invading Canada and setting up this Manitoba Republic? Well, not really in the U.S. government. O'Donoghue actually goes and meets with President Grant's foreign secretary, Secretary of State, the Americans call it, to ask him to help the invasion, and he says no, the U.S. government isn't interested. And at that point, O'Donoghue starts looking around for maybe some private supporters who might be willing to help him with his project. So why is O'Donoghue so keen to set up this Manitoban Republic? Well, probably because he views the Catholic religion as being stamped out in North America. In the 1860s, Catholics were not popular either in America or in Canada. Both had governments that were led by a majority Protestant population, which was not always the most accepting of the Catholic faith. And he was serious enough about his faith that he wanted to become a priest. So you can see how he could view creating a new country in North America with a Catholic majority would be a good thing to defend the church. And I guess two populations that were Catholic were the Irish and the Métis. And the Métis, exactly. So that's where this sort of comes together. So how does he end up with John O'Neill? Well, that's a great question. One of the troubles of studying secret societies is that sometimes you don't know exactly how people got introduced to each other. What we do know is that at some point in the probably summer of 1870, John O'Neill has just lost the Battle of Eccles Hill, which was his second attempt to invade Canada. He fought against Prince Arthur, son of Queen Victoria, later to be one of Canada's governor generals. That's a fun little trivia fact for you. But anyway, he's back in the United States at this point, and he's going back to the Fenian leadership, who he's invaded Canada on their behalf twice now, but they're no longer so thrilled about this whole invading Canada thing. So why was John O'Neill, on behalf of the Fenians, invading Canada? That seems like a weird thing for an Irish separatist to do. It does. It did even at the time. So there's some factors involved. For one thing, the Fenians have an issue, which is that they raise money and they send it to a rebel group in Ireland, but you can't exactly get receipts back from a rebel group in Ireland because anything you could verify, if the British got their hands on it, could lead to the people involved on the Irish side being executed, so they don't want to do that. But this means that the Fenians are always worried that maybe all this money they're raising is being embezzled by somebody and just disappearing. One of the advantages of trying to come up with ways to strike back at the British from America is that then they can keep a clear eye on where their money is going. I guess when you're involved with a criminal organization, it's Hard to uh, ask for receipts. Exactly. So this gives them a strong incentive to try and figure out some cunning plan that will allow them to strike a strong blow for Ireland from American territory. And that's not easy to do, but a man by the name of 
John O'Mahony suggests that maybe one thing they could do is seize some British territory in North America, because this is 1866 when they first try this, before Canada is an independent country, and then sort of trade it back to the British in return for concessions. But even at the time, this doesn't really seem like a great plan. It seems kind of crazy. But the thing is that the American Civil War is ending. It ends in 1865. So there's a bunch of guns floating around. There's a bunch of unemployed soldiers floating around. A lot of them were Irish because the Irish in America were frequently poor immigrants who were very incentivized to join the military and get a steady paycheck. There's a lot of factors that make it seem like this is a completely crazy idea, but maybe if they can just pull it off, they can win big. All right, so the plan is to invade Canada, capture it, and then trade it back to the British. Exactly. And it's such a crazy plan, the Fenians actually split into two groups, one opposed to it and one in favor. But then, in one of those crazy twists of history, the group that was initially opposed to it gets worried that it's too popular and that people are going to leave them to join their splinter faction that wants to invade. So they decide they also have to run an invasion of Canada just to keep their members happy. So everyone's invading Canada. And amongst everyone is John O'Neill, who's actually an experienced officer who served in the Union Army during the Civil War, has a good reputation, and, and he proves that. Because in 1866, there are two raids on Canada, one by O'Mahony's splinter faction in New Brunswick called the Campobello Island Raid that we don't really need to worry about. But the second one, led by John O'Neill, supposed to be part of a much broader strategy, but it's the only one that actually gets off the ground, lands in Canada near a little town called Ridgeway in Ontario. And... Once the Fenians land there, they quickly advance to the town and they're trying to threaten the locks of the Welland Canal in hopes that this will convince the British to send troops there, which is supposed to distract away from another raid. But like I said, that raid doesn't actually happen, so Ridgeway ends up being pretty pointless. But for John O'Neill, it's actually a chance to really prove himself, and he does. A group of Canadian militia, led by a man called Lieutenant Colonel Booker, decides that they want to attack the Fenians uh, against orders because their British general knows that he's got more troops coming and there's no point attacking the Fenians now. But they rush in, and there's a battle at Ridgeway, and O'Neill wins. So there's an actual battle between the Fenians and the Canadians. There's an actual battle, roughly 600 Fenians, slightly more Canadian militia, and the Canadian militia is poorly organized, mostly poorly equipped. One of the few units that actually has really modern weapons just got issued them directly before they marched off to this battle and don't actually know how to use them yet. They've got a lot of problems. And their command is even worse. Their officers are all amateurs. Colonel Booker, who's in the senior commander on the scene, gets confused, thinks that the Fenian have cavalry, which they don't, and orders his men to form square, which isn't something they're actually trained to do, so they're confused, and the Fenians win. Were the Canadians expecting to be invaded? Like, it sounds like they weren't very organized. They're very disorganized. This is, they hadn't really been expecting anything until very shortly before the invasion when word of this Fenian 
plan to invade Canada started to leak, but they weren't prepared for it to happen at Ridgeway, they were extremely disorganized, and things went badly for them. Okay, so a great start here for the Fenians, but I'm gathering they don't conquer Canada. They don't. And the problem here is, as I've said, this was supposed to be a distraction. So if you're John O'Neill in 1866, you've just won at Ridgeway and you control this little town if you want to, but there's more British troops coming, and you can't hold out against all of them forever. And the group that was supposed to actually cross and seize control of major cities in Canada while you were distracting the British troops isn't coming, and so there's really not much to do. He doesn't have a plan, so he has to go back to the U.S., which turns out to be difficult and dangerous, and he gets arrested once he's in the U.S. and charged with violating neutrality laws, and he gets put in jail. So it's sort of an ignominious end to an expedition that looked like it was starting very well. Oh, boy. So all of this... This bad end to this didn't convince John O'Neill to give up on the plan of invading Canada. On the contrary, he felt like he'd proved that the Canadian militia could be beaten, and even beaten by fairly small groups of men. So almost as soon as he gets out of jail in 1870, he's right back at organizing another invasion of Canada, and the Fenian organization are so excited about Ridgeway that they think that this might actually work, so they're with him. And so he does. He invades Canada again. And how does it go the second time around? Are the uh, Canadians as badly prepared this time? Well, unfortunately for John O'Neill, he tells his plans to one of his best friends who showed up and volunteered to go with him on this next invasion. And that man calls himself Henri Le Caron, and he is another experienced officer from the American Civil War who fought beside John O'Neill during the war. But what John O'Neill doesn't know is that his real name is Thomas Willis Beach. He's actually a British Secret Service agent, and the reason why he's volunteering to help John O'Neill invade Canada is because he wants to know when and where that's going to happen. He gets the full plan of John O'Neill's new plan of attack, and when John O'Neill's troops arrive at Eccles Hill, the British army is there immediately, and they just drive him off in a very short period of time. Foiled by the old best friend who turned out to be a British spy trap. Exactly. And that's mostly the end of the Fenian campaign of 1870. They also invade at Trout River. It's another one of these invade at two places and distract the British things, but because the British know the full plan, they just put troops at both places and wipe out both attacks with almost no casualties on the British side. So that's sort of the end for the Fenian leadership of this whole invading Canada idea. They've tried it several times. It hasn't worked they're now in favor of just sort of letting it go. All right, so the Fenians are going to go back to their other plans for combating the British and freeing Ireland. They no longer want to invade Canada, but I'm guessing this brings us back to the start of this podcast. Exactly. Now we've got John O'Neill in 
the United States floating around. He's going to the Fenian leadership and he's telling them, I still want to invade Canada. And they're not interested. And we've also got William O'Donohue floating around. He's fled Canada after the rebellion, the first real rebellion. And he's going to the Fenian leadership at this point. Uh, exactly how he manages to meet them is a little unclear. But he goes to them and says, I want you to invade Canada. A different part of Canada. But still, there's a sort of... These are two very similar guys floating in very similar cir circles. It would almost be surprising if they didn't meet. A match made in heaven. Exactly. So, they meet up. And... Once O'Donohue starts explaining it, O'Neill thinks, I finally found it. The place in British Canada, it's actually less British now because Canada has become a country, a sort of independent country, but, you know, he's not really accepted that. But anyway, finally found a group who have a sort of grievance which is going to make them be willing to join me and help me form something which is going to throw off the British which is going to prove to everybody that my plans were always sound and I just had a lot of bad luck well it does seem like he's had a lot of bad luck but I'm not sure his plans were entirely sound so these guys get together and their plan is to invade Manitoba their plan is to invade Manitoba so the first thing they do of course, is they have to round up some weapons. And the Fenian leadership says that we won't, like, tell anybody that you're invading Manitoba, but we're also not going to support you. So they go looking for somebody who'd be an old friend, maybe, of John O'Neill's, who has a lot of contacts and might be able to help them. Oh, don't tell me they fall for the old British spy trap again. So they go to Henri Le Caron, who's still around, and they tell him, we're planning to invade Manitoba, we need to buy some guns. Do you know where we can do that? And he actually tells them where they can buy some guns, and then he immediately writes a letter to his superiors in the British Secret Service telling them, O'Neill is planning to invade Canada again, but this time in Manitoba. Oh, man, guys, the same the same trap again. Oh, okay. So, so they've got their guns, though. They got their guns. But as it turns out, it doesn't much matter that they accidentally told their plans to a British spy because O'Donohue tries to get Riel on board one last time because Louis Riel has real credibility as a leader of the Métis that O'Donohue doesn't necessarily have. But Riel didn't like this whole creating an independent republic backed by the Americans' plan when it was supposed to be the actual American government and now that it's supposed to be a sketchy group of pro-Irish rebels, he's entirely out. So he writes a letter to Sir John A. Macdonald, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, offering to raise an army amongst the Métis to defeat O'Donohue's new plan to invade Manitoba. And Canadian history fans will know that Sir John A. Macdonald and Louis Riel didn't often get along. They were sort of enemies, so... For the two of them to be working together, Louis Riel must have really not gone gotten along with these Fenian guys. He does not. No, he is very unhappy with this idea. And 
Sir John A is also not actually thrilled at the idea of working with Louis Riel, but he also doesn't like these Fenian guys, so he doesn't authorize necessarily a full army from amongst the Métis, but he definitely asks Louis Riel to help convince the Métis not to join in or help this rebellion, which Louis Riel does to a very broad extent. You don't get a lot of Métis support for this little raid. That would seem like a big blow to the Fenians not having the Métis on their side. It is, but they don't know about any of this. They don't know that the British know. They don't know that Louis Riel has told all the Métis not to support them. Their plans have also leaked to the American government, which also isn't thrilled, but they don't know about that either. So they board a train bound for North Dakota with the plan of raiding north into Canada. All right, so O'Donohue, O'Neill, and the Fenians are headed to Canada. How does it work out? Well, they arrive at the little town of Pembina, North Dakota, on the border, and then they march north with their plan of invasion firmly in their minds. Unfortunately, they're a little bit behind the times in terms of maps. They might have bought a more recent and updated one, because it turns out the Canadian-American border was marked wrongly initially, and it's actually a few hundred meters north of the initial markings that were created to designate the border. So the border was wrong, but they don't know that. The border was wrong, and they don't know that. So the old Canadian customs house, which was built right on the border, has been mostly abandoned while this is all sorted out. So the Fenians arrive, the customs house is empty, they don't really want to seize an empty house. That seems less than dramatic. So they go over to a little Hudson's Bay Company trading post, which is right next to the customs house, and they seize that. And there's people there, and they raise a Fenian flag, and it's very exciting. They've captured their first outpost in this raid on Canada. Is there a but? There's a tiny but. So at the... Hudson's Bay Company trading outpost at the time is a lovely woman by the name of Mrs. Wheaton. And when word comes that the Fenians have seized this trading outpost, her husband is unhappy, which you would generally expect. But it's kind of an important fact because her husband is Captain Lloyd Wheaton of the U.S. Cavalry. And Captain Lloyd Wheaton is upset because the Fenians have captured the outpost where his wife is living. Indeed, he is very unhappy about this, so he takes his regiment of American cavalry and rides to this outpost, which is actually technically in American territory, although the Fenians don't know that yet, and immediately attacks. Having the U.S. cavalry attacking you is never a good thing, I would think. It's very bad, especially for the Fenians, who are mostly ex-American soldiers who don't actually want to fight against America. They try and flee north, which is a little historical irony since they were initially planning to invade Canada, but they don't actually get very far, mostly. The U.S. Cavalry have horses, they're kind of famous for it, and they quickly round up most of the fleeing Fenians. There's one exception, William O'Donohue. Where does William O'Donohue go? Well, he goes north into Canada, hoping to join up with some of his friends amongst the Métis who might shelter him and help him slip away. 
But before he gets there, he meets some of Riel's supporters amongst the Métis who are already on the lookout for him. And he's arrested too, and eventually returned to the Americans to face American justice for attacking what's technically an American trading outpost. So the Fenians tried to invade Canada, ended up capturing an American outpost, and then fleeing America to Canada. That is how things wound up happening, yes. This seems like a pretty big folly all around. Invading the wrong country is really never a great thing. How does it all end, David? Well, it's sort of an anticlimax. The American government decides not to charge anybody but John O'Neill with violating laws. And then when they try and charge John O'Neill, it all ends up being so confused legally as John O'Neill argues that he's guilty of violating the neutrality laws, but not guilty of attacking an American outpost because he didn't know it was American. And the American government is unwilling to charge him with violating the neutrality laws because that would be admitting that the territory he invaded was British, but can't prove that he actually knew that he was committing a crime. And it gets very confusing, and eventually the Americans get bored with trying to prosecute him and drop charges, but he can't really raise any support for a fourth invasion of Canada, unsurprisingly. Third time's the charm. Fourth time, uh, you're out of luck, buddy. So he eventually dies in Nebraska. They name a town after him, actually. O'Neill, Nebraska is a town today. Named an American town named after a guy who accidentally invaded America. Yep. (laughs) Shout out to all our listeners in O'Neill, Nebraska. If we have any, your town has a fascinating history, I would imagine. O'Donohue sort of vanishes off the scene. He also dies uh, fairly young. And... Louis Riel actually will come back and be important, but not as a result of any Fenian-related shenanigans. Well, David, it's a crazy story of a crazy plan that ends in a crazy way. That about sums it up, yeah. (laughs) So, I guess we won't put any morals on this story, but, you know, maybe at least buy new maps if you're planning to invade any foreign countries. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I'm always glad to share with you, Neil. All right, and thank you for listening. If you want to find us online, you can go to obrother.ca. On Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, we're at handle at whenartthou. And if you want to send us an email, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. All right, David, it's time for our famous history game to end the podcast. You ready? All right, tell me about it. This one is called, What Century Is It? And uh, as you can guess from the snappy name that I came up with, the idea is that you guess what century this event happened in. Sound good? All right, sounds good. All right, here's our first one. The end of the Hundred Years' War. What century was it? Well, that would be the end of the 1600s so the 17th century ah you're off it was actually 1453 so the 15th century of course the hundred years war was actually 116 years long so if you were counting from the start of the war you need to add 16 years after 100 all right david next one what century 
did Aesop write his fables? Aesop's fables, of course, pretty famous. What century did he write them? Well, it's got to be before Christ, so let's say the 2nd century B.C. This was actually the 4th century B.C. that he wrote his famous fables. All right, David, this one, I, I'm sure you're going to get this one. Cleopatra's death. Famous queen, pharaoh of Egypt. Cleopatra, when did she die? In the 1st century B.C. Yes, correct. 30 B.C. She actually committed suicide by poisoning. Believed It's believed that she was bitten by an asp, a poisonous snake, to commit suicide so that she wouldn't be taken to Rome after Octavian invaded. All right, David, another one for you here. Two left. This one is the start of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire. I'm going to guess the 14th century. Oh, you're really close. This actually started in 1299, so it was right at the end of the 13th century. And uh, no one quite knows how the Ottomans managed to conquer their neighbors and start up this empire, but 1299 was the year. Final one, David, the fall of Rome. The fall of Rome, if I'm recalling correctly, that would be in the 5th century, right? Yes, 476, Romulus is overthrown, the last emperor of Rome, last Roman emperor of Rome, in 476. Good job, David. All right. And thanks for listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? 